From 11FS, I'm Dave DeBrew, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you TransferWise is the latest UK fintech to take on the US, Revolut teams up with Visa to help them go global, and a US marijuana banking bill passes House in historic vote. That was really hard to say. All this on much, much more on today's show. But before we get into that, you may have heard by now that we've made a documentary. 11 Years, The Rise of UK Fintech is now available to watch for free over on 11years.film. It's just 60 minutes, and in that you'll learn how the UK financial crisis actually caused the reform for both the regulation and actually encouraged competition in the UK market, why London is the perfect environment for fintech innovation, why the UK fintech is so attractive to VC firms and angel investors, what future challenges and opportunities exist for the UK. UK fintech and well so 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 much more as well check it out over on 11years.film and share it with all of your friends i mean i've said to people just share it with your mum so they'll know what industry you work in so go ahead and do that all right let's get on with the show Welcome to episode 363 of Fintech Insider, recorded in our brand new studio, in our brand new office. This is so cool. Uh, today, I am joined by my colleague and co-host, Lida Glyptus. How's it going, Lida? Oh, you know, it's been a boring week. We had all our clients here. We're in a brand new office. We have our own studio. We launched a documentary. It's not even Friday yet. It's been amazing. It has been a bit weird, isn't it? We've had so many conversations where David goes, last week when we did that, yesterday. <laughs> I have to say, I mean, we, we moved into the new office on Saturday. I felt rather intimidated. I'm not going to lie. It's like, it's it takes me like up. a long time to like walk to your desk now. It's kind of weird, but uh, but it's very, very cool, isn't it? It's amazing. All right. As always, we are not alone. We're joined by some awesome, awesome guests. Uh, first up and making his debut, we have John Eric Setsource, who is the VP of Identity and Innovation at Signicat. How's it going? Pretty good. Um, tell us a little bit more about the company before we get it underway. Okay, so Signicat is a qualified trust service provider. Mm-hmm. We deliver services to banks to help them with the identity journey from onboarding, authentication, and signatures to make sure all this is handled in a good way. Cool. I mean, most big organizations have that problem, right? Exactly. I mean, most problems are identity problems. Well, and on that, like unpack that. On the identity side of things, it seems like it's... It's sort of a thing that's not really addressed by banks right now, but they have the potential to do that, right? They definitely have a potential to do that. And I think the, the biggest player that we are partnering with is Rabobank in the Netherlands, nice. which are using our services to provide identity services out into the market, which I find uh, you know really interesting seeing banks are finally starting to catch on. on the- Very cool. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. uh, Making their returns, though, we have Catherine Harris. How's it going, Catherine? You good? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, David. How are you doing? Good. How's things over at Lloyds Banking Group? Oh, they're pretty interesting at the moment. Lots of change going on, keeping people very busy. Um, But it's all pretty good. Very cool. Well, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Uh, Next up, we have Dan Lauser, who is the head of fintech at CCG Group. No, CC Group. Nailed it. How's it going? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Busy, busy week. So, uh, like, and it's not even over yet. There's like a whole Friday to go yet, which is exciting. So, all right, let's get on with the show. First up, we have a story over on the Telegraph, which is that TransferWise signs US partners for transatlantic expansion. Surprised I got through that. Um, So this is that uh, TransferWise will open up its technology to U.S. banks, allowing them to provide quick and cheap international payments to their customers within their own apps. So this is really interesting, I think. I mean, TransferWise have done an amazing amount to actually get a lot of customers 
from themselves. But increasingly, if they're going to start doing, especially in such a massive geography like the US, being able to to uh, do these integrations, that seems like an amazing thing to do and probably no mean feat to actually do those integrations. So before we got into it, we actually managed to talk to the CTO over at TransferWise. So let's hear from them first. The US market is now, for us, as big as the UK and accounts for a quarter of TransferWise's entire revenue. So that's pretty exciting. We also recently brought the Borderless account and the Debit MasterCard to the US in May. And now we believe it's the right time to bring TransferWise for banks and our API to US customers. TransferWise has already announced many partnerships across Europe. We're already working with Monzo, who runs the international payments through us, uh, Bank in the Netherlands, uh, and 26 in Germany. And as we have expanded our US rails and our US product, we think the opportunity is right. Uh, to bring this API offering to our customers and their customers in the US. All three companies, Novo, Stanford Credit Union, and us share a common vision to modernize an outdated financial system and provide a fair and transparent banking experience for consumers and businesses. So working together was a natural fit all around. Stanford Credit Union wanted to significantly update the existing infrastructure in response to the growing member demand for access to the best cross-border payments experience. Price, transparency, and speed were the key requirements. So TransferWise was a natural fit from their broad standpoint. We're super excited to have launched in the US. We're excited for this to be the first of many partnerships in the coming months, as we have more banks, businesses, and financial institutions using our API, bringing low cost and transparent services to their customers. Cool, uh, I mean, Interesting timing as well, I guess. Like, given the amount of partnerships that TransferWise have had, the fact that they've gone and uh, partnered up with a challenger bank in the US first, with I guess like the emergence of N26 and Monzo and everybody moving over there, you can kind of imagine a scenario where they're not going to be very far behind this. What do you, What do you guys think? I love plumbing. We know that about me. So for me, the the first step that was exciting was the realization that scale of the kind that these guys have always wanted would not be achieved just interfacing with a customer. So the partnership model was really exciting. And if, you, if you're hungry, this is the obvious place to go. Setting up with a, a new partner that is very similar in shape to their existing partners, and I'm guessing hoping that their existing partners will just stretch that relationship, will give them overnight quite a sizable footprint. And then it becomes very interesting because what they do, okay, they were among the first in Europe, um, but they're by no means alone. What they do here is, is still quite unique in the U.S., um, but it's interesting to see them push the, the plumbing side harder than, than they do the retail side, which is, which is where the scale is, where the money is, and where the, the true transformational potential they're doing. It's exciting. Okay. And partnerships make a lot of sense because, I mean, if you just look at the U.K. market, the amount of cross-border payment providers, they're just numerous, right? There's tons out there. Asimo, World First, et cetera, et cetera. Trans- um, uh, TravelX. Um, so you want to try and find a channel to market and partnering with banks makes sense to do that, especially if you're looking at the banks that are talked about here when you have a smaller size bank, which probably does want to build up that sort of capability on its own. We know that. I think I was looking at this a while ago for a client. I think, you know, the costs uh, that Santander was seeing around international money transfer were enormous because mm-hmm. of a lot of the manual processes and things. So obviously, TransferWorks have solved that and they can deliver that as a plug and play to these businesses. Um, 
I suppose the, the the question is is you know will they start to partner with any bigger players um, because obviously some of the larger banks are still a really big source of revenue for them in mm. terms of international money transfers. Um, but yeah, it seems like an obvious move, and everything seems to be going stateside at the moment. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting for from a US perspective on that as well because essentially, I mean uh, you know it says that uh, Transferwise are about six million users. I mean Western Union still make up what 95% of sort of global remittances at that scale anyway so it's 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 interesting but actually does this offer transferwise an opportunity to really you know take it to the home court with western union well, I think the big question is, is there's one thing doing international money transfers when it's a purely digital play, but the majority of remittances require the last mile, right? Mm. So looking into this space, um, the reason why Western Union and some of those other players like RIA, for example, continue to have payments as the cash cow that they are, even though they've had to digitize to an extent, is because if you are in an emerging market and you need to get hold of this money, often you will need to cash out at an agent or a venue or some variety like that. Mm. So does... What does that mean for transfer-wise? Does that put a cap to a certain to, to, to what it's doing to a certain extent? Does it then need to maybe partner with somebody who can provide that cash-out, last-mile kind of service? So I think those are sort of the, the, the key questions for them because as much as we think we're pretty much digital native now, let's be honest, there's still a big role for the physical and analog side of things. Mm. Well, and you say actually, I mean, organizations like Santander have, uh, you know, invested and worked with players like Ripple, you know, on things like XRP as a as a potential solution, uh, you know, a today's technology to try and provide an ability to take billions of pounds out of that, that operation globally. But, mm. you know, here at TransferWise, like, I, I actually think from a technological perspective, there's nothing too revolutionary in what TransferWise are doing, but actually they're in a situation where they're they're just I, I say just marketing it well and do it, doing the operations well it's a huge business to do that and do it really really well um but they're they're essentially just like i say connecting the dots and doing it incredibly efficiently yeah i mean i'm interested to know if anybody on the panel but when they with starling bank when they in their marketplace and then they weren't there was a story about and i don't know what happened there so that's interesting. I don't know whether the commercials around this in terms of the margins are quite thin, that you've got to have a real serious commercial conversation if this is going to work at scale. I, um, I, think, I think that's got to be the thing. I think yeah. if you look at the model that they're doing the, where they're essentially you know, shaving costs out in various different places, um, it's not on ones and twos. This is about having scale. Uh, and arguably, you know, partnering up with really big organizations to, to do that at this type of scale. Like if suddenly TransferWise came out and did a partnership with HSBC or Wells Fargo or something, that would quadruple overnight the ability for those guys to kind of distribute the, these things. But it's interesting at that point where the blurred lines between B2C and B2B fintech actually is. But it uh, allows them to actually, to your point, David, step one back and, and focus on what it is they're doing well because by virtue of their business model, they work much better with the more vanilla currencies. And although they catered to some of the others, sadly, none of the jurisdictions I tended to go to and need them. But um, it, this allows them to focus on the currencies where they can actually provide those savings. Um, and I don't have the answer to your question, but I would think that being one of multiple partners allows them to really, really focus on the commercials would and should work if you keep it to those geographies where they, they can get the scale that David is talking about. Mm. The, the question for me, and it's just, you know, what I guess is, and I need to have a disclaimer here, one of my clients is, is Travelex, but, you know, a company like Travelex will go and work with a bank and do a purely international money transfer thing. 
TransferWise has wider aspirations, right? And we just heard uh, their spokesperson talking about uh, borderless banking, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm guessing there is a certain type of bank customer who doesn't see TransferWise necessarily as a threat to its core business where it can just add a value-added service because, you know, with some of the other uh, banks, they might be sort of bumping heads a little bit in terms of their offerings. I think that's fair, but it's also potentially um, a moot point because the time comes where the bank will make the decision on the basis of profitability and speed. And if everyone else is getting with, with this program, then it might not be a choice of do I or do I not, but who do I do it with? We were at Cybos last mm. week and we were on the Future of uh, Money panel discussing what happened between well, in the last, call it five, six years, that left the banks now in a moment where they realize that actually we, we don't get to set the pace, they don't get to set um, the agenda, they don't get to decide who, what, and when. Ten years ago, even five, six years ago, you would still get the conversations that were very much aligned with what you said. Well, that challenges my model down the line, that challenges how I make money over here, so I'll keep you at arm's length. Um, when TransferWise first came to the Inner Tribe Challenge, all the banks in the room, myself included, were like, no way. Um, <laughs> were they wearing clothes at the time? or? <laughs> <laughs> and as I'm aware, in the room at the same time, it was like an assault of the senses, let me tell you. Um, but there was a, an undeniable belief that we as banks at the time were controlling the narrative, that if we said no, it wouldn't happen. Their success has very much proven that that is not the case. And um, it's quite interesting because the U.S. the U.S. has lagged behind in in all matters fintech, and seeing all of our European sort of poster children going, yeah, we're coming. Uh, it's a very interesting moment where our transition from we control this to oh we don't um, will happen much much faster in the U.S. because none of these guys are fledglings. They might succeed in the U.S. They might not. I hope they do. Mm. But that's irrelevant because it will forever change the conversation and will accelerate what you just pointed out. I don't think the banks will have the choice forever to to allow for these guys to exist or not. It will be a case, well, if it's cheaper and faster, actually, even if they eat out of your profitability elsewhere, you're going to have to play nice. I completely agree. I think it's uh, it was an argument about whether it was an if. Um, and actually, like then it became an argument about when. Uh, and actually, I guess moving on to the next story, it's about where. So actually, like the next story over on FinTech Futures is Revolut reveals new agreement with Visa to help push their global expansion. So this is Revolut has made a new agreement with Visa to expand its businesses into eight new countries. So they're pushing into Brazil, Japan, Russia, the US, Singapore, New Zealand, Canada, all by the end of the year. That is insane. Uh, and next year, Argentina, India, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, Korea, and South Africa. I actually don't know what's left after that. Like, it's uh, there'll be banking Elon Musk on Mars at, uh, the next <laughs> after that. But um, So the agreement will see Revolut integrate with Visa's APIs, offer a interbank exchange with 29 countries and cryptocurrencies, as well as peer-to-peer payments with bill splitting and capabilities all built in. So the firm is set to hire 3,500 new staff uh, and are on the lookout for eight new CEOs. Wow, this is insane growth, isn't it? You know, so so to the to the where thing, the answer is everywhere. Um, so, I mean, what do you guys think about this one? Obviously, I think Revolut have been sort of uh, very had some public issues. Uh, they really seem to have got their shit together now in terms of uh, actually hiring some really really smart people. And based on the aspirations in terms of the expansion, then seemingly unstoppable. 
What right. do you think? But I mean, for, for a bank to succeed, they need to have trust. I mean, the core business is the trust issue, right? And as you said, there's been some bad news around it. And, you know, with the core element of what they're doing, the KYC story, which is, you know, really important. And also, I mean, they're, they're moving into the peer-to-peer payment. They're doing the crypto, which are sort of breeding ground for money laundering, which they really need to take care that yeah. they do a good job on that. Yeah, I mean, um, definitely something from a crypto perspective, having good KYC is uh, somewhat exactly. of an issue, isn't it, in terms of uh, exactly. in terms of that side. But I, I think, um, you know, it's looking at the, I know we covered this on a couple of shows ago, but actually bringing in people like uh, Richard Davies from TSB, you know, with HSBC experience, uh, they've recruited people in from Deutsche Bank, from, you know, really big established organizations. It feels like... Um, as like leader was saying, it's like it feels uh, you know fintechs growing up. Like it feels like this sort of proud <laughs> proud moment where actually actually people are really taking this seriously now. What do you think, Kat? Well, it's certainly bold and ambitious, that's for sure. And it's going to be interesting to see how they pull it off. But going back to that trust point, I think it's the trust of the recruitment of new colleagues as well. And that's a struggle, or it's an interesting area. Is all banks or companies in this area? are seeing a change to how we do business. Like at Lloyd's, we've got to look at moving from traditional roles that we would typically recruit for. And now the market of colleagues or or bringing people in is open and people you'd recruit from traditional financial companies are now open up to any kind of tech company that Mm. will be coming forward as well. And that makes it really interesting and it's going to be a challenging one. Um, and I know that they've had some interesting stories around their culture and their recruitment process too. Um, so how do they rebuild that trust around that? And I think the start of bringing in some reputable names will certainly help that for sure. Um, the other thing is that will be interesting is moving into those different countries as well. So they've got a bit of an advantage of being a challenger over here. But when they go into territories like New Zealand, where I'm from, even the bigger banks are typically small in scale and can move a bit faster. So how much of that advantage are they going to have in those new territories as well? Yeah. I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see how much, uh, you know, we we talk a lot about actually localization of product because, you know, what works really well in the UK does not work well in other geos. You know, we've seen really good examples of things like M-Pesa work fantastically well in one uh, uh, country in Africa, but not in another. So actually does, you know, Revolut as a as a as a singular thing deployed against all of these different geographies, does it actually give them enough differentiation in the market? Or actually are there things happening in Korea and Singapore and all of these different places that actually will require them to make much more sort of, uh, you know, creative changes to the proposition? I I think it's, I genuinely think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens, you know. But one thing for sure is that, you know, every bank in that geography will to your point, leader, on the last story, now being in a situation where it's not a if, it's like when. Uh, You know, these guys are insanely well-funded and, you know, having spoken to Nikolai before, pretty like relentless are actually sort of going and making these things happen. So do you think the big banks will read this and go, all right, the time is now? I I think so. And at the same time, I don't know what they will be thinking the time is for. Because when when Revolut started, they were they were homing in on, you know, I don't know if you remember that first pitch they did all those years ago. It was it was students on the on the year out, and that that profile very quickly changed to the business traveler and to a sort of European affluent. Um, when they realised students on a year out didn't make any didn't money, didn't make any money yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, 
But what is interesting about the geographies they have expanded to is that they've stuck to that model largely. What is interesting about the geographies they're expanding to is that you're into remittances territory. And some of them are on both sides of that receiving and sending remittances. And and there are quite a few um, of of those places where that's the prize. Now, to, to your point, they may have done a bit too much and in order to break into a really saturated market like remittances, you would need to uh, focus. But to me, just looking at the roll call of these countries, it would be foolish not to. So they're probably thinking about it. And that's where it becomes interesting for the local players who in most of those places have some sort of money corridor arrangement with a digital interface to say, hold on a second, before they deploy, what is it that we can do differently? And it will be interesting to see them mobilize because now it's not just about... FX, right? Mm. India stands out there, doesn't it? I mean, in particular, I mean, it's a market which is dishing out banking licenses to new players. It's got a whole, it's got, isn't there the national payments infrastructure called UT? U- UPI. UPI, right? Check which out kind of, Nikhil Kumar's interview on well, Fintech Insider. Well, there we go. Is, and Paytm is, is pretty dominant as well. You know, that is a, I remember working with, um, with a, a mobile money company years ago when like, M-Pesa was working. And, you know, and the CEO there said that they'd have to always think so seriously about India because it's such a heterogeneous market, just given it's just one, one, one country. And there's just such a variety of different flavors of, of payment companies and banks there. They are so deeply ambitious. Hmm. It's, it's amazing. I mean, is the, the flip to the story as well? Like, is, I mean, so much of fintech has been based on a foundation of MasterCard, is this actually really Visa kind of stepping up to the plate in terms of actually everything that's going on? Because if you look at the early days of, of fintech, it was the partnerships that MasterCard did that really created a prepaid card that Monzo did or you know how uh, Starling kind of initially got to market as well, as well as, I mean, Tide and Coconut and kind of all of the plays that we really know. Um, is this them really looking at actually how they fuel ridiculous amounts of scale in it that actually in all of those different geographies gives them the the credibility within that ecosystem to do something different i think visa have clearly caught up with mastercard from a sort of a, a payments card scheme supporting fintechs challenges neos mastercard as you said was way ahead especially in the uk every prepaid product f freeze all those sorts of guys um it's all mastercards now visa's caught up and i think I'm not sure whether Visa helps provide Revolut some legitimacy in those markets. At the end of the day, they're just the the card scheme, the card issuer. Um, but I don't know. They did get Zlatan to do a advert with Revolut, didn't they? That was pretty fucking cool. Did that? So, oh, I missed miss that, that entirely. The, oh, no, I'm really Cup. disappointed. Nobody else see that? Was that? It was. It, thank you, Laura. Like, uh, did you I, have a moment? <laughs> you thought, did I mad? Yeah, did I no, dream exactly. this? Did I make that up? But no, producer Laura backs me up. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, um, but I mean, Visa, it's it's a win-win, right? They get to um, show off their fintech chops and at the same time, you know, work with an organization that's going to be pumping payments across 29 currencies and at least eight markets in the next year. So It's an interesting one, though, right? Because there are three layers to this. One is the, the message they send to the geeks because we all know that there was a latency issue right at the beginning. It wasn't just a willingness issue, but also a latency issue for the for the businesses that had the option between the card schemes. MasterCard was just a little more robust. So this is definitely Visa saying that was then, we fixed it because look what we're taking on. But does it matter to the man on the street, to your point? No, but acceptance does. And in quite a lot of those places, one one card scheme is... 
yeah, better than others. I, I honestly, uh, like I say, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter to like my mum. But mm. actually, if I was starting a fintech in one of those geographies right now, then actually it matters to them. Mm. Which is actually how the, uh, you know, the the reaction that happened with Mastercard was, how did you make that happen so quickly and get that to market? Which is why then they were on every plastic. So, you know, if this is essentially fintech ecosystems that are flourishing in a in a similar way that what happened here, uh, which was terrible English, uh, back in 2010, you know, in London, and we're seeing that in all of these geographies, maybe this is smart for Visa to kind of sow those seeds, essentially. Absolutely. And, and India has the most mature public good API infrastructure in the world. Mm. But the other places on that list wouldn't know where to begin. So if you have Visa stepping into these geographies, it's almost like transfer-wise in reverse. If you go, um, Visa will already have a massive network in Saudi Arabia, say, but they they now produce um, an access path, rails, and infrastructure for a Revolut to play on. That is a matter of time before they open it to someone else. And then you create a very different narrative. Mm. Um, But again, all of those geographies are stomping grounds for MasterCard. Some of them are exceptionally profitable. So it'll be interesting to see whether this becomes now a war of the giants and the story stops being about Revolut and it's about who MasterCard position themselves with in those geographies. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard mm-hmm. big banks are waking up to being nervous about Revolut. You know, actually, what was it, 36,000 customers that they acquired in one day recently? That's, uh, you know, for any size of organization, that's a, a big amount of people. But I guess uh, what they do with this, we'll, we'll definitely sort of tell next. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to the next story. So we have Monzo Salary Sorter over on Wired. So the, the new sorter that those guys have actually deployed can be used when a salary or any regular payment above £100 is made into an account. So it works by giving the option in both personal and joint accounts to split regular income into different sections. And now, this, this actually had uh, Jason Bates in the office uh, whooping and cheering because, I mean, it really, I think personally, it, it takes Monzo's ability to actually carry not just the, the fun at the bar spend, but actually into the, the really interesting stuff of actually managing like financial lives uh, into a completely different space. So uh, they seem to get a lot of people kind of excited, both in our office and others. And um, and on a negative note, maybe just sort of quieten down some of those Monzo Plus cards being shut down. So, But we'll talk about that one at a later date. Um, what do you guys think of this? I'm not going to lie. I'm probably one of those excited ones too. Um, and I've been a bit of a skeptic on, I've always joked as Monzo being my pocket money card. Mm. And that's where I have, do my fun spending and that kind of thing and haven't really taken it seriously as a current account. Um, but this is a problem that I've personally had. So I think if they can give that opportunity and, and I definitely am excited about trying it mm. um, and splitting my bills that way. Um, so yeah, I thumbs up from me. I'm Keen to see how it goes. I mean, I I've, I feel like I've sort of almost forced, uh, and I wonder if they've actually really been looking in the uh, in the sort of guts of the data of how people are using the account to then start creating the account around how people are using it. You know, what I mean, it sounds it sounds stupid. Watch what people do, and then like evolve your product to it. But not many people do that. But mm, but essentially, on? like l- sort of landing a balance that you throw into a pot that you essentially ration to yourself um, is, as you say, it's like my pocket money, and I sort of ration my spending by doing that. But it just gives you a sense of control and like a balance and a and a backstop to actually just having all of your money in your current account, right? You know what I love about it? 
it goes against what we have accepted as a given, and I haven't all this time, which is increase customer touch points to increase delight, make it fun, make it beautiful. It's all about the journey. And it's like, yeah, but really, it's all about not having to do it. If I have to do it, the journey is amazing. But isn't banking better when it just happens? And this is a decision that will actually, I think, drive both account opening and this becoming a primary account because it allows people to create a pattern validated, reverse it if they don't like it, that means that the few times a month that you need to check into your account to move funds around, you won't have to do that anymore. And for me, it's bold. I agree with everything you're saying. It's it's meaningful. It's reflecting what people are doing. But it's particularly bold because it, it shows that we're coming of age and realizing that actually what customers want is less of you. And if you manage to retain their trust, to your very valid point, and do what you know they want, in a way that is transparent and reversible but doesn't involve them, then that's a dream come true, right? Mm. That's the ideal journey, the one I don't have to go on. <laughs> it's um, it's interesting. I wonder if you can do um, – I wonder if you can do all of these things in one thing. I think that's the sort of point that we're sort of getting to is actually there has been a um, – you know, I, I have a I have a sensible bank and I have my Monzo bank and I have like money in one of them and money in the other one and I sort of ration myself in that way. But can I can, – will my release valve for my sensible money be like a hot coral card or not? Will it be that or will it need to be something else? Because, I mean, the thing that I found most interesting, like perversely, the thing I found most interesting about having a Monzo Plus account was it was like a boring blue and it made me feel slightly differently about the transactions for it. But perversely, I actually started using it for more and more stuff because it wasn't the the fun thing I was doing. It was like the normal thing. It was like it actually was everyday banking, not just the, you know, at the bar card. Um, so I think the, the, the weird thing is they almost did paint themselves into a corner by being that. But it's good that they've recognized that. Um, I know there's been, I mean, some stats, I think Tom tweeted this week about, um, you know, the usage statistics between what... Uh, users of Monzo do and Revolut and Starling and a few others. Um, and it's interesting to see that more and more people are using it as a primary account, that they are doing it more for day-to-day -day transactional stuff and direct debits and standing orders and like real banking. Um, and that's probably at the point where it really matters. Yeah. No, I'm thinking, I mean, from a technical perspective, this is not really complex to do. Mm. I mean, any bank could implement stuff like this. And I think we, people, we want our banks to do stuff on our behalf. Mm. We want them to, I mean, they have the knowledge. Uh, we want them to simplify our life. Mm. Um, I have some thoughts, you know, something else I would like my bank to do. GDPR, right? We love all the pop-ups, right? And you're about to do something and you get this pop-up. What if I could say, you know, their bank, I trust you. Why don't you take care of all this pop-up? You accept it or you follow what I'm doing. And then, you know, you monitor this and then you can come back and say, well, you know, John Eric, yesterday you approved this and this, you know, consented to this. You probably shouldn't have done that. Mm. I mean, that would be a trust service yeah. that would make a lot of sense for bank. Do you, do you know what's taking this to, uh, to a next level. Do you know what I found really interesting? I don't know if you guys have upgraded to the latest version of iOS mm -hmm. on your mobile device. Mm -hmm. Like actually every three hours I'm getting a, hey, this app in the background is using your location yes, services exactly. for these reasons and are you okay with that? Mm -hmm. And then actually like it's making me think about whether I really trust the organization that's using those things. Yes. And a bunch of them I'm saying no to. Um, and, I, and I think it is that. It's, it's actually the same, same kind of thing, yeah, right? Yeah, completely. Mm -hmm. If but Monzo it, wants to differentiate itself from you know other 
maybe uh, challenger banks, which have had issues around trust, for example, build yourself as the as the trusted bank and mm-hmm. help people to do all the annoying things like passwords and logins and stuff right. like that. You know, um, I'm, I'm with John Eric in that. Yeah, it seems quite. It's a great idea, but it seems sort of simple. It feels like we should be doing something more than this. Mm. Um, I, I find it um, it's it's really interesting, almost like their greatest strength being virality around a hot coral card mm. might end up being the biggest inhibitor to people really taking it seriously. Yeah. Um, but anyway, let's move on. We'll come back to that one. I guess the ending of this story will we'll sort of figure out whether it's important or not. All right, next story that we have over on This Is Money is that Sainsbury's becomes the latest British supermarket to pull out of the mortgage market. So uh, over on This Is Money, they say Sainsbury's announced it would axe new home loans and intends to stop plowing extra capital into its bank, which is quite terrifying. Uh, Mortgages are seen as a cornerstone of the property challenge challenging the big banks and building societies for that matter as well. And Tesco Bank and Sainsbury's Bank have both made the decision to stop lending, indicating that they have reined in their hopes, which is a pretty sad indictment, I guess, of uh, of that really. You know, Tesco and Sainsbury's Bank were both formed back in 1997. I think Tesco was originally a JV with RBS, and I can't remember who Sainsbury's was, but it was definitely a JV with, with Bank of Scotland. Wow. Scottish banks and partnering up with uh, supermarkets, who would have thought? Um, But it's interesting to see that they've sort of gone full circle. I I often sort of joke um, that I think these sort of um, challenger first issue banks basically protested so much like teenagers do that they never turn into their parents and ending up basically turning into their parents. Uh, you know, they use the same technology, they ended up with the same products and really haven't created differentiation. And if I'm honest with you, most of them just haven't created an opportunity that they've really maximized the massive customer base that they've got in their stores, which is just mental. Uh, what do you guys think? It's mental, but at the same time, and this is, I'm, I'm a recovering banker, guys, but I haven't recovered yet. <laughs> and there is, there is a moment of... How many days clean are you? Uh, it's a year and one month clean. <laughs> um, banking is not a side-of-desk job. And, and what we're seeing that is very different about today's challengers is that they're throwing everything at it. It's all they do. It's, in fact, it's all they do. They eat, live, and breathe banking transformation. Um, and although those banks were absolutely run by separate teams and there were separate legal entities and all the good stuff, the reality is that businesses roll up to a certain set of decisions and a certain set of mentalities. And whenever you speak to people who are were or are working those banks, they will joke about being a supermarket first. But it's not a joke. I think I think the fundamental signal that this sends to me is the realization that it's not easy and it's not glamorous and it's definitely not a side business. And if you can't give it all you've got, you can't compete with the big boys and you can definitely not compete with the incumbents. So you might as well focus on selling soup. Hmm. I mean, I mean, I wonder if they didn't do it in 1997, but did it in 2019, whether the outcome would be fundamentally different. Because essentially, I mean, between 1997 and now, technology has been, you know, revolutionized and commoditized kind of in a, in a similar cycle, right? But wouldn't you, if you were doing it today, wouldn't you have gone down a seamless experience for your shoppers that included transactions and potentially 
post lending and potentially bridging loans and potentially, you know, funding for legal advice because your shopping suggests you're going through a divorce. Um, and and we know the data is like the New Economic Foundation issued some very very interesting data that is held by the supermarkets. Um, but that wouldn't have been side of mm. desk. That would have been going in depth. Yeah. with the thing you currently do. And and I, I think that dilution is what we see here, that it's actually too hard to do all these things and transform these two businesses mm-hmm. at the same time. I, I mean, per- perversely, like you say, it's uh, banking definitely isn't a side hustle, right? And actually, I mean, Tesco, Tesco Metro have got so many locations in so many places. In a, and in a world where actually uh, banks are shrinking from the high street, they actually have the potential to create that sort of relationship there. But it's just it's, it is weird that actually what they've done is they've created another silo within within their organizations rather than really taking what the, the startups don't have, uh, which is distribution, mm-hmm. but that they do. Yeah, Sorry. the best branch yeah. network. But, but isn't the child uh, often in – they say they're going to digitize the services. And what they do is take their manual processes and they put a digital layer on top of that, yeah. right, which doesn't – help a lot. Um, what we saw, one, one of the first uh, use cases in Norway were bank ID. I mean, everybody has the bank ID which identifies you. That was actually a, a computer store. And they wanted to offer consumer finance. Mm. And the question was, well, how do I know who you are? Bank ID. Mm. So then the consumer used bank ID to identify himself and sign off the loan. It was a pure digital process. You got the money, you got the TV you couldn't afford, right? But you're building off a home base, right? And I think what you said, David, makes a lot of sense. You know, a lot of um, the challenger banks are looking to partner with what, the post office, right, to allow for cash out and, you know, mm. distribution. And, you know, it should be a smart move from a Tesco's or a Sainsbury's in terms of we've got physical locations. Yeah. And what a lot of people need at the moment is physical access to financial services. And, and physical locations with cash in them already mm. and probably an ATM in store as well. You know, the, like, so... That you know, I don't mean I don't mean people taking money out of the ATM, but actually somebody's bringing money to put it in the ATM. So they they actually have all of the operation around it already incredibly efficient. It just uh, it almost seems like a uh, a blind spot, which is weird. And and I think back to your your point though, leader. Actually, I mean Tesco particularly. Uh, you know, uh, mid '90s, late '90s were heralded as uh, dumb Humvee, right? Like the the uh, the data ability that they had the tesco um what was it called it's the it's the um the points card yeah. club card, club club card. card. Yeah, one of my club. friends works at dunhumby and go. the amount of and this is one of the things the amount of data they have around people is frightening yeah. i mean we're not maybe quite at sort of google levels but they know a hell of a lot about mm. their customers and you think a combination of being born in the dawn of the internet age and seeing all that data it just seems yeah. they haven't kind of brought those things together i agree Well, sad. I guess time will tell. See what they do next. But um, all right. On that note, we're going to fill up our drinks. We'll be back for part two. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. 
Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. All right, let's get on with the next part of the show. So next up, we have a story over on Finextra, which is PayPal gets Chinese payments license. So PayPal has become the first foreign firm to get a online payments license in China after buying a 70% stake in a name I cannot pronounce, um, which is super, super interesting. Uh, PayPal CEO Dan Shulman says the People's Bank of China has approved the GoPay acquisition, and the deal is set to close out in the fourth quarter. So PayPal becomes the first foreign company to enter the Chinese market, two years after Beijing promised to be opening up in terms of allowing foreign organizations to actually to come in. So this is, I mean, pretty astonishing, really. I guess PayPal have been in a bit of a funny space, I guess, the last few years. You know, they're sort of acting more and more and more like a corporate. But, I mean, distribution, as we were talking about earlier on, actually distribution into China and actually being able to actually start addressing some of that market, it might be a bit of a masterstroke. What do you guys think? I have I have this one story I tell, and David has heard it 78 times, so if his eyes start glazing over, he will. He, this is why. But about 10 years ago, I was speaking to someone from PayPal who did not know I do this for a living and I will be telling the story again and again and again at conferences and podcasts. But they were saying that um, they had reached pretty much saturation point of their current market and their only real growth was people getting, you know, born. The, the, the real footprint growth just was not there and they had to find diversification, this and that. So the first thing I thought of when I saw this was like, okay, boom. This opens up. It solves the problem for a while. It doesn't solve the the what and the how, but in terms of sheer numbers, this definitely solves the problem. The second thing I thought, and maybe that's how my brain works, like, what did you do to get it? I mean, the acquisition makes sense because this is how China works, but I'm sure that the others who are still waiting tried that avenue. And I'm not saying it was anything untoward or anything inappropriate at all. I'm just wondering, given the giants that have been in waiting for so long, what did it take and what did they mm. do right? And nothing has been said. It's like all poker faces. Well, and given everything that's happening the other way, you know, actually, if you look at, was it MoneyGram that was tried to be bought by a Chinese company and uh, obviously Trump kind of intervened and said, let's maybe not do that. Um, for a Chinese government to allow a US company to enter into the Chinese market in this way. Like you say, there must have been amazing things happen in the negotiations around that deal. Don't do cards. It's simple as that, surely. I mean, Union Pay International is frankly a Chinese government payment scheme, as much as they'll say they're not. Um, and PayPal are going to go in there and what, they're going to offer a wallet? How are they going to differentiate against two absolute beer moths which offer everything under the sun and suck you in and make you ex- make their experience extremely sticky? Well, they'll offer Zoom maybe to do international money transfer, which the other guys don't have. But, you know, where are they going to play and be different? And I think it's just because they're not going to go in there and compete from a card issuing card scheme perspective and not compete with UPI. And that's probably why Visa and, and MasterCard have had, had problems. Absolutely. And with the comfort that they won't get... To do that because they won't be allowed. No. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting context that, like you say, that Visa and Mastercard have been applying to kind of you know knocking on the door to get into the country and haven't been allowed to stray into this space. But I mean, is it as simple as the fact that they basically bought somebody and then made it work with the government? 
Sounds like it. Yeah. I mean, reading between the lines as much as we can. So it turns out money can buy you anything. <laughs> Good moral of the story there, boys and girls. All right, moving on. We have a story over on US News, which is marijuana banking bill passes in the House. Uh, apparently, this is a very historic vote. Uh, a measure to protect financial institutions that service cannabis companies became the first standalone marijuana reform bill to ever clear a chamber of Congress. Uh, apparently, they've had a number of attempts to try and get this type of thing through and have always been blocked at one point or another. So, I mean, other than Snoop Dogg, who's uh, who's probably very excited about this, then is this like a, a big deal? Is this sort of legitimizing the marijuana industry in the US potentially? When I, when I, saw, I had a laugh when I saw this story in your list there because a couple of months back I uh, called a friend of mine living in California. And, you know, we caught up. I hadn't talked for some time and talked about kids and so on. Yeah, and by the way, he said, one of my kids are working in one of these Mariana farms. And, you know, that's very special because everything is done in cash. So on payday, they have armed guards. Wow. And they hand out cash because obviously, I mean, they're legal in California, but not on government level. So they can't get a bank account. So, I mean, I asked, are you serious? I mean, yeah, yeah, that was real. And that was, you know, amusing seeing this story coming up that, you know, they are looking into that now. Mm. It's crazy, isn't it? I guess uh, not having a bank account hasn't stopped them doing business, albeit maybe maybe legitimizing the the need for cash. Wasn't it Mike Tyson recently who's actually started a marijuana farm in somewhere in the middle of America? And Hannah's furiously Googling this right now. Um, but um, but it is... Well, it is Willie Nelson's in on it as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, an amazing thing that actually it's being sort of legitimized more and more. So apparently 11 states uh, and the District of Columbia have legalized the recreational use of marijuana. So, I mean, it's the type of thing that actually... there. I, I mean... You know, we, I, I was joking about Snoop Dogg, but, I mean, there are many medical trials that actually are showing that actually the uh, the effect that this can have. In fact, actually, if you go and buy a fancy coffee from Planet Organic, you can get a shot of CBD in there as well. So, you know, actually, people are increasingly sort of making this more and more mainstream. So, I mean, if it's being legalized, maybe it should be, you know, legalized from a banking perspective too. There is, there is an interesting – for me, the first thought, obviously – was you have bigger problems, US, focus on your bigger problems. But actually, this solves for a big inconsistency because those businesses are actually legal businesses. They can, they're not like dens. They are registered in the jurisdictions where they operate. They can provide contracts mm-hmm. for their suppliers, the premises they're in. These, these are not criminal outfits. Um, so the fact that they could get a license. I mean, I'm sure there are criminal outfits as well, but I'm sure also that they won't get a banking, mm. um, a bank account. So mm. this is, it's kind of the squaring of that circle that needed squaring. Because mm. if you permit these businesses to operate as legitimate businesses, then you have to permit it to operate exactly. fully, and then you can tax them, mm. which is kind of where the loop closes, right? Yeah, I mean that's the exact discussion I had with my friend as well. I mean, they are legal in one context, but illegal in a different context. And that's the inconsistency, you know. You can, I mean, whether you're for or against, you know, legalizing marijuana, that's a different discussion. But if you decide, okay, this is going to be legalized, well, then you need to go all the way and say you can also. Uh, well, and, the that, bank. and that, and I guess, is the interesting thing from from a financial services perspective that although actually at a state level it has been considered legal, 
at a federal level, then it's been considered illegal. Exactly. So you've essentially been told within the confines of you know this country, it is not legal, but in this one small. Uh, county, it is legal. It's like defining in Norwich, I can do a thing, but in the rest of the country, you can't. It's probably uh, true that you can do a thing in oh, Norwich. Oh, I can do all the things. But, <laughs> uh, and, and of course, the problem is then the banks are federal, right? Yeah, and, and and that's the thing. Actually, it becomes in a situation where the the uh, the local and the broader geographical kind of context starts to sort of mess with what works and what doesn't. And actually, I mean, in, this isn't just something that affects obviously marijuana. We're talking about this, but I mean, the fintech charter where it was. Based basically launched to be much more proactive in the US for allowing in this similar way that we've done with Project Innovate and everything that's happened with the regulatory uh, changes in the UK and broader into Europe. Actually, the state started suing the uh, the government and the Fed to just to kind of be in a situation where it wasn't creating uh, disadvantage to anybody within them. So yeah. it's, I mean, it's a it is a very complex network, isn't it? We started the the show talking about transfer wise and and trying to get into America, and it just says what the challenge is for a lot of the fintechs that are moving over there, and the fact that you've got such a heterogeneous market, and you know, from one state to the other, you might have just even like payments messaging protocols will be different from another one. So it's very very difficult difficult to tackle that market when you've got this disconnect between what's happening at a state level and a federal level if you are in a scale business like TransferWise is when it comes to payments. So why is the US still a little bit behind everybody else, you know, just getting chip and pin, et cetera, et cetera? Well, it seems to be that no, kind of... Chip and he- sign. Sorry, chip and... Yeah, I know. I was over in Boston last week and I'm putting my, my card in and then I'm being asked to sign. I'm like, oh, yeah. there's no point. To what's to, to this entire yeah to yeah. this entire process anyway it's it's, it's mystifying but I, they need I to sort have out found this. it is not best to do that <laughs> it's like um, you can do what David Birch does and just sign Sergio Aguero every time <laughs> um, Dave Birch if you're listening. Um, Norwich turned you over, <laughs> and you wouldn't talk to me this week at the premiere because of it. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> All right, moving on to our last story. Uh, very, 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 very interesting one over on Metro. Um, that Louis Theroux has had to grant permission via Twitter to a man who wants to have his face on a bank card. So this is a story that Louis Theroux has granted permission to a man who has requested uh, to use a rather mischievous photo of him on a Barclays bank card. So Twitter user Jamie Green, along with a screenshot of his potential card, tweeted, Louis Theroux, apparently I need your permission to have this bank card made. Help a guy out? Uh, so Louis Louis III then granted permission within 45 minutes, which is pretty impressive. I have to say, it's it's a very 90s vibe picture. If you guys haven't well, seen I it, I wouldn't you call should... it mischievous. It's more a uh, yeah, sort of 90s dreamboat. Pose. It was, yeah. But uh, I mean, it's interesting that the thing that I took from this that I found most concerning is that a tweet is considered legal consent um, mm. because essentially. Naz is going to really hate me, who runs all of our legal side of things. So, you know, like, actually, you've got to be really careful what you agree to on Twitter to a certain degree, right? right. And how, ba- how, on the back of this, it's going to monitor your Twitter. Well, I know. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, the, the onboarding process is not really good for Twitter, right? How do they really know? I mean, I have my Twitter account. Do Twitter really know my identity? No, mm. they don't. Well, I mean, so the, I guess... I, I guess from Twitter's defense, what they would say is that Louis Theroux is a verified account. Exactly. And in order to be a verified account, essentially they have to go through an ID sense. But essentially it's just giving your passport, uh, a scan of your passport to show that you are who you say you are. Or at least that your name on your thing matches your name on your 
identification element. Um, but in both instances, they don't validate the document. They don't see you face-to-face. Exactly. They don't thoroughly do the things that financial services do in any way, shape, or form. And I, I actually think that is a massive gap for Twitter. You know, a verified account being actually a truly verified source of identity might be a really interesting right. thing. And if Twitter come to us and want to verify that, this will help. <laughs> well, if only we the, knew. The gauntlet has been thrown. But <laughs> I, I would be very surprised if Barclays didn't follow this up with a thick wad of paper that would need to be signed for this to be uh, bulletproof from a from a potential court case. And I would be equally surprised if Luther returned that paperwork around in 45 minutes, or indeed at all. Because imagine, you say, yeah, sure, do it, whatever. And then you get a DM from Barclays saying, give us a postal address because we have 78 pages of documentation you need to fill out. You might be less inclined to help a guy out. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, I'll reach out to Jamie Green and see if he actually managed to get his card, I guess. And, oh, get a cutaway on the show. Sounds good. We'll have him on next week. It's not new though is it I mean they've been doing personalised mm. put anything on a card for a long time now I mean I'm Barclays customers at least five or six years I'm sure I can remember you being able to personalise it so the question is is doing this sort of thing does this help them to compete with the likes of Monzo and Coral and Starling with its bright green etc because those feel more tribal right that's mm. part of being part of being a bit of a tribe part of a sort of a mutual recognition not hey, I've got a picture of Donald Trump on my card or something like that. That would be fun. <laughs> You'd have no friends here right now. <laughs> it, it would joking, be a, I'm it, just joking. It, it would be a real statement of the It's bar. actually Boris Johnson, as I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you can get his permission. <laughs> He's not two, busy at the moment, I'm sure it'll be fine. He seems to find it difficult to find other people's permission. Doesn't <laughs> <he>? <laughs> All right, on that note, that wraps up this week's show. Thank you so much to our guests for joining us. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Cap? Uh, so I've got my handle, which is I'm Catherine Harris. Um, probably LinkedIn and Instagram is the best place for me. And what's your handle on Instagram? Is it the same? Instagram? I've, oh, that's a good, I think it is. I don't really check my Instagram handle. Just search Catherine Harris. There you go. All right, John. Yeah, um, Twitter, JSetsos, or LinkedIn. I have a very unique name, so I'm easy to find. Very good. Hard to spell, easy yeah, to find. Yeah, I, I know. All right, Dan. Um, I'm, a <laughs> I'm a PR monkey man. On Twitter, and oh, uh, and then also on LinkedIn. So yeah, PR Monkey kinda, Man on LinkedIn as well. No, no, no. That's just actually my name. Um, but yeah, I probably right. should change that at some point. But hey, I'm getting some got some brand equity now. So what can I say? <laughs> all right, <laughs> I'm not sure what to say about that. <laughs> Lida, where can people find out more about you? At Lida Glibdis on Twitter or Lida Glibdis on LinkedIn. Very good. And you can find me on, uh, I don't know, drop me an email, david at 11fs.com. Old school. Let's see what happens. <laughs> All right. Uh, what do you think of today's stories? Let us know over on at Fintech Insiders or email us on podcast at 11fs.com. I hope this sounds sounding good. I think Alex is very impressed with this new studio. I'm just saying. Yeah. It's all been worth it. All the up move and all the changes, right? You've been enjoying this? 100%. Awesome. All right. Don't forget to watch and share 11 Years documentary. You can find that over on 11years.film and share it with all of your friends using the hashtag, hashtag 11 years. We made the film to celebrate the amazing fintech community in the UK and abroad, and it would be so much to us for you to get involved in that. So head over to 11years.film and watch that now. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. See you next week.